subject for the evening talk is relating to relating. <coughs> there have been a number of common threads and themes in spiritual teachings and particularly in the teachings which certainly have their roots in the hearts and minds of human beings and when we put that into a particular origin, into a particular location, we might uh, highlight, emphasize Eastern uh, teachings. And in the teachings, one of the aspects which is emphasized again and again is that the way we experience and perceive our world is very much from a dualistic standpoint. A dualistic position in, is one in which we look at our self or ourselves as a collective and we perceive others as other selves to the degree that we perceive and highlight the differences through communication, language, experience, thought, impressions and memory. We use such factors to reinforce the differences until there is a substantial and what is perceived to be a real gap between oneself or selves as a collective and other or other selves. Once this gap, the division, is established, then from that division all manner of action can ensue which brings suffering, pain, conflict to oneself and to others. The collective reinforcement of the divisions occur obviously in the personal life between one human being and another. They also, it also enters into the social life, one group and another group, and it enters into the international life in the form of one nation or collective of nations against other nations. And through our belief, almost intrinsic within the duality, through language especially, and the uh, substance given to the duality, we reinforce it with each other. And, and, uh, and our reinforcement of the duality shows itself in the taking of sides. And we see this pattern, historical human pattern, reinforced personally, socially, nationally, inter internationally, again and again, till it gains, as it seems to have done, a kind of momentum in which we can't actually imagine that it's a psychological construct. In that, in recent times, as in other, other periods of times, the heightening of the duality is one when 
you or I have, it would appear, some involvement in the duality, in the partiality of participating in one side. And the most obvious, and what was referred to in the go-around this afternoon, recent example of this, is what is consuming the daily press during the days before we arrive and has persisted. So, this afternoon, a friend um, got hold of a newspaper. Then the duality gets revealed starkly because amongst the many factors, some feeling which we have of identification which shows itself in our nationality, it shows itself in our roots, it shows itself in our country. Once that is there as a belief of who I am, then with that comes its opposite, and the opposite in this case is the Arab world. So on the front pages of the newspaper, it gives the news, the main headline, as you can see, Iraq, foreigners will be held, and it would appear from reading the uh, newspapers at the present time that the US and other countries are and have sent considerable numbers of troops to the Middle East, particularly Saudi Arabia. There's tremendous amount of war uh, rhetoric and menacing which is taking place that it says here that on Wednesday President Saddam Hussein of Iraq gave into Iranian demands for formally ending the hostilities, apparently out of concern that Iraq could not afford to confront international forces in Saudi Arabia while still facing hostile forces along the 750-mile border with Iran. To secure the peace, Hussein promised to withdraw Iraqi forces from Iranian territory, exchange prisoners with Tehran, and resume observance of a 1975 treaty by which the two countries share the strategic Shat al-Arab waterway. It was, it's the newspaper claims, I don't think it's correct, however, it was Iran's abrogation of that treaty that provoked Hussein to invade Iran in 1980. Put it in a nutshell, that war between Iran and Iraq, in which there was tremendous military investment by the West, with half a million young men and, of course, women and children as well, lost on each side. They have moved right back to where they were before, a total waste of human life. So in the duality of a situation, and one goes, if I may just conclude here, page two, crisis in the Middle East, page three, crisis in the Middle East, page four, crisis in the Middle East, page five, crisis in the Middle East. So it seems that where there's a relationship to the world, where we are perceiving through the coloured glasses of nationality, sometimes in the form of and the guise of patriotism, 
it seems that the m once the patterns seem to be set in that way, it's necessary in the world of dualism that if the dualism of the old isn't giving enough reinforcement to the dualism, to the belief, inherent belief in it, there has to be emotionally, psychologically, and nationally speaking, a new shift to reinforce the dualism. And if the, sh if the old is the dualism of the Western Bloc and Eastern Bloc, and one hasn't understood, explored the nature of dualism, not only inwardly, but politically, socially, empirically, then a new one has to take formation, and it would appear middle crisis in the Middle East is one which the very headline says, the crisis is in the Middle East. Is it? Something to do with the way of relating to relating. And unfortunately, the self-other language, whether it's that crisis or the crisis in the personal relationship, the exploration of one or the other reveals the dynamics human being believing in the inherent existence of dualism. Us and them, me and him, me and her. I think sometimes when we look into the, the dualisms that we, that we set up, it's as though we've it's necessary to, to explore other ways, which is from Eastern teachings, what is called the, the finding out and the discovery of what it means for a non-dual position. And if a non-dual position is to be discovered and the action has come to be born out of that, then it would seem utter necessity for you and I to be able to question, what am I identified with? If somehow the building up of my identity and the reinforcement of it sets up other identity and the gap, then somewhere, collectively, we have to look at our sense of identity. And whatever you and I keep reinforcing through the language, through the language, then it tends to generate the other. And then we say to ourselves, there's a gap. I've got to do something about the gap. I've got to bridge the gap. I've got to overcome the gap. I, I need to integrate this and that. And it becomes a, a noble idea, a noble theme, a noble exploration. And we do it here. Yesterday evening, I had a meeting with the staff. I wouldn't call it crisis in the middle way. 
But anyway. <laughs> but the staff were bringing up a common issue which affects the staff life. And it equally, of course, affects and raises questions for ourselves in being in one situation. The one situation is called IMS. That gains its selfness. We heard this afternoon very uh, beautifully and uh, generously of, of spirit, appreciation for the situation. Appreciation for the uh, immensity and the depths of kindnesses which are shown to all of us. And it becomes something for us, it becomes something special for us which we appreciate, and some of us come regularly here because we have deep love for the, for the place and for the potency of the transformations that genuinely do take place here at this facility. But in the very movement, in that appreciation, in that gratitude, in the uh, love, brings then the question of the other when I leave here. And the expression of love for one invites the sense of gap to the other. How am I going to integrate all this? How am I going to bring all this into all of that? And we set up the duality. And we do it with our lives again and again and again. And it seems that's life. That's the truth. Because it's in a truth which we've agreed upon to be the truth. It's not my truth, it's the truth which has been agreed upon. We had a meeting with the staff yesterday. As elsewhere, appreciation. Because in a way, which is slightly unfair, I often feel the... the, the the teachers get the glory, or at least too much of it. And we forget that we're in a situation of relating to relating. And in the relating to the relationships which take place, everybody actually cooperates to make it happen. Everybody relates to making it happen. And if one person decided to blow the trumpet of the United States National Anthem in the dining hall or in here, it would have some effect on people. <laughs> we don't mind blowing our own trumpet. but <laughs> <laughs> So there's a cooperation which takes place, and the co cooperation is the relatedness, and the rela relatedness is a certain respectfulness through that. In the staff meeting yesterday, the staff were saying, and the st every single staff have said to me since I came here and to any other facility, one of the problems which we have is of integrating. And it seems like there's a disparity, there's a gap. There's the yogis, the cross-legged, the uh, <laughs> power chamber, whatever, in here, 
Then there's the area of the relationship, the relationship of the, the staff between themselves, the staff between staff and teachers and board, the staff and the individual relationship to herself or himself. And then there's the, the relationship to the work activity itself. So let, there's, there's the meditation there, there's the work there, and there's the interpersonal relationship element. And it seems each one gains a selfness. It gains a substance. And in, in the making of it, through memory and thought and feeling and conversation and communicating, in the memory of it, once one's got the substance, one's got the gap. Once one's got the gap, one's got the question of what's going to finish the gap, link the gap. In other words, how can I as a staff, how can I as a person leaving here, integrate this practice? this work, these teachings, whatever. So this for an hour, hour and a half or whatever, on the lawn we were exploring together. And my comment was, it's an utterly hopeless endeavor. <laughs> the endless and sometimes frantic effort to bridge the gap. And I said the social reality, in this case of the facility here, when there's so much emphasis given on this, in this hall, actually works against the staff interests. Because the staff feel, how can I bring my mindfulnesses, my awarenesses, my meditations in the hall, in to the hammering the hammer on the chisel, working in the garden, doing the, that wretched computer work and, <laughs> and doing all those meals. And we, so we make gaps and in that I say, let's not be concerned with integration. Let's explore disintegration. Let's be a little bit more adventurous. and have a disintegrating practice. <laughs> there are some teachers who come to this hall, if they hear, hear what Christopher said, would weep. <laughs> but they, they still invite me. <laughs> so when we establish self the self of this and reinforce the belief system in this self then simultaneously we reinforce the belief system of self other sometimes in the setting up of that duality in our life and the constructions of mind and the reinforcement of it once we have that, then the mind, having formed and established that, must, must find blame, must make a problem, must make an issue to overcome, and starts to look in this world for something which will overcome this. Well, there's your answer. Middle East crisis. 
And that replays itself, replays itself, because sometimes I think we prefer to have the duality, the reinforcement of the self, self-other, the fixation of that, than actually look at the package in its totality. Sometimes in the relatedness, we see that in the relatedness which is taking place, we have a relatedness to each other sometimes, the work that we do, the activities that we're engaged in, which is a kind of coping relatedness. There's a lot going on in our life, we have a lot of work and responsibilities, we're, we're doing a lot, we, we heard wonderful, beautiful testimonies this, this afternoon of people's uh, commitments and what they're doing with their life to bring something beautiful and profound into this world and the work to end suffering si situations. But sometimes we notice in ourselves with, with all of that, that movement that takes place, somehow or other it's a coping movement. We cope with the day, we cope with the phone and the correspondence and the endless meetings and, and the one-to-one. -one. And so sometimes we, when we view in that way, we get some stress and burnout or tiredness or exhaustion. Then we feel that the self of all of that, the unsatisfactoriness of all of that, needs for me some renewal, some reinforcement. And the reinforcements as such facilities as this do provide that. But the provision of that still, as I say, can mean other and here. And the pattern, and this is a very important point now, the pattern of all of this is that one is constantly perceiving the differences. And as long as you and I believe in the inherent truth of differences, as long as we've got, is as long as problems persist. As long as you and I believe in the inherent truth of differences, is as long as the Middle East crisis persists. Drop the word Arab drop the word Middle East, drop the word other, them. So we perceive differences. We get saturated in our pathological society with the perception of differences. We worship the differences, our consumerism, is goes on its hand and bended knees to generate more differences in products, in this, that and the other. It's pathological. It's pathological because it undermines and actively refutes the common, the shared, the relatedness, the togetherness, the non-difference. And I think 
we have to develop and discover inside of ourselves, either develop or discover Im immediately a power of seeing, a power of wisdom which has seen through the differences which make the degree of gap and conflict and suffering. Understand? We're not here to negate differences and say there are no differences. It's an extreme viewpoint. But making the differences which reinforce the gap to the degree it generates suffering globally or personally is taking the differences way, 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 way too far. Because you and I have to acknowledge the diversity of life. It's part of the beauty of it. The wonder, the mystery of, the, of it is reflected and manifested in its endless diversity. But we've gone too far with it. And we're suffering as a people, as a species, as a nation. So when are we going to stop and say, okay, let, let me really, really look at what I'm doing with differences. And let me, let me really deeply, deeply explore non-differences. Sometimes I can do that in just what my eyes and my ears tell me. I don't need any special reflections for it. Sometimes I need the power of meditative reflections. And sometimes when one starts reflecting on non-difference between oneself and other, in that sometimes it seems rather vague and abstract and theoretical because the mind is obsessing with its differences. And I think if you and I bear patience with ourselves, each time we are, we are caught up in the world of differences and we know that the differences, a common one with ourselves, the differences between today and tomorrow, and the views that go along with it. Today is okay, it's a nice day, it's a pleasant day. Tomorrow's going to be fantastic because I'm out of here. <laughs> and we perceive the differences, we're attached to them, we're indulging in them, we keep communicating them. But suppose we say, look, I'm tired of all of that. Then in our perception, in our reflection, perhaps we can go from brain to heart. Perhaps we can go, as I was saying last night, to blood remembering of the non-differences. And yet that doesn't have to be for us in our relating to relating. A, a whole extreme view at the other end. If we went to the other end and said, well, life is all, everything's the same, there are no differences, it's all the same, just a one big blob of energy or something. <laughs> It's down at the other end. And somewhere between the extreme of belief in differences and belief in sameness, somewhere there is some intangible mystery of middleness, middle wayness. And I say reflection, the human being's capacity to use heartful thinking. 
can contribute to us looking afresh and looking so differently that in, that in the liberation of the middle wayness and the freedom of all of that, then the action comes from another way of being. Not bound to differences and not bound to sameness. As, as you um, may, may know that um, uh, there was um, a time when the, uh, the English, particularly in their map of the world, had, when I was at school, we only learned uh, English history. And no other part of the world existed, of course. <laughs> and we would be proudly shown at school the map. This was in the 1950s. Map of the world. And how, until the uh, 1950s and late 1940s, how much of it was in a kind of red-orange and belonged to the, the British Empire. And even, as you know, and... Coming here, I could say, well, I'm coming here to visit one of the old colonies. <laughs> <laughs> and with the view that took form, with the belief, Western belief, of superiority feelings, unresolved superiority feelings, through travel and force, became a norm, became a way in their relationship to the world in which the relationship of the duality showed itself, we might say in simple terms, in domination and submission. And I've said a number of times in speaking in India, that the English spent some 150 years as the, the British Raj in India. One looks at the overview, and apart from little scholarship with some of the Eastern texts and philosophies and spiritual teachings, it was an utter, utter waste of time, in every sense of the waste of time. Because the patronizing, dominating, colonial mentality, the policing mentality was so strong they couldn't see further than the, the end of their thought. And it's taken a different generation of people, as some of you and ourselves, who have said, let's not go in with that mind. Let's see if there's something that we can learn. Let's put aside our self-righteousness, our policing, our knowledge, our colonial mentality of superiority. Let's go in and let's explore and let's find out what we might discover which might be useful and valid and liberating. 
And I think that situation, it's, I'm using it as much metaphorically as anything, that situation like that, in a way, that outlook and that attitude needs to be applied in countless other situations. And just as we say here, let me come in free from a standpoint, a fixed view. Let me come in without so much of my selfness. Then I might be able to discover and see and explore. Relating to relating. Sometimes when we explore and look at the relating to relating, we see, and again, with the go I'm reminded of the go-round here, that during the recent years, there's some exploration which is going on inwardly and outwardly. At the moment, I think that perhaps there's a great deal of exploration to, to look into self to discover the liberated way of being which truly sees the disintegration and understands the disintegration of self and other. And if one says, I want to be a free human being, I don't want to be in bondage to self, which keeps generating the reality of other and the conflicts which go along with it. If I don't want to live that way and really taste of freedom which is spoken of generations and generations of people of serious investigation into life, what am I prepared to give up for it? What am I prepared to sacrifice for that liberation? What am I prepared to surrender? What am I prepared to, to renounce? Otherwise, we'll become fudgy meditators. Feeling a little bit better about ourselves, feeling a little bit more communication between self and other, a little bit more relatedness, a little bit more comfort, that the self-other divide is not so big. We might feel a little bit more comfortable about the Middle East crisis. We've, we just say, well, let's them, <coughs> nothing to do with us. And then the medit knowing the meditation has got that, the tragedy in a way of a passive relating. And we've abused it. We've abused it because it's not just to give us a little bit more energy, it's not just to reduce our stress, it's not just to make us a little bit more psychologically healthy, and all the immense value of that, it's to liberate us from dualities. Nothing else, anything else, as the Buddha said, again and again, never be satisfied, ever, ever in our life with anything else but liberation. And sometimes we compromise <coughs> these practices we compromise through study, we compromise through peaceful mind, 
We compromise through self-knowledge. We compromise through living a kind of quiet, orderly, comfortable life. And we've lost the fire for liberation. We, we got satisfied in a way with something less than the best. So in our explorations, and I think we are very much challenged, as I say, to ask ourselves, what am I prepared to give up? What am I prepared to do with that? What am I prepared to let go of? And sometimes we find that the I and the my has a self-feature in all of this really begins to count. And I think in recent years, I may say, here in the uh, United States, and it, which has been a tremendous inspiration to, in other parts of the Western societies, that there's been a tremendous amount of genuine inner research and exploration taking place even though the population, as an example of Europe, continental Europe, probably on some parity with uh, North America, nevertheless, the diversity of what's taking place, particularly East and West Coast here, is quite remarkable. But there's a strand in it, as many of us have discussed, both here and elsewhere, of self-interest. And perhaps the liberating vision is getting watered down or neglected or compromised in some way or other for a kind of comfort in the scheme of things. And just today, I was looking at a magazine in the center here. It listed in the magazine 20 of the most popular books in... Uh, um, United States during the 1980s. Four of those books, if I, one of them was Seeking the Heart of Wisdom by Joseph and Jack, who with, along with Sharon are co-founders of IMS. A second book of the 20 most spiritual psychological book, which was uh, listed, was The Miracle of Mindfulness by Thich Nhat Hanh, who many of you know and has sat here and spoken, teaches very much in the insight meditation uh, way of uh, teachings and incorporating some <coughs> Zen as well. <coughs> A third book was The Transformations of Consciousness with Dan Brown at Harvard and uh, Roger Walsh, who Roger sat, I've got a six, seven, eight, nine, three months retreats here and lives on the uh, west coast. And the other uh, fourth book was Stephen Levine, Who Dies? And Stephen, of course, has worked uh, with many of the teachers of, of IMS and in these teachings. And so when, when one sees it in the, 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 the circles, shall we say, that we move in and through out of, a, in case, a list of 20 books. Four of these books uh, of the 1980s have uh, a real relationship to the, the Dharma community and the insight meditation 
tradition. And I think all of that, and, and those other books as well, all reflect a, a degree, an intensity of exploration which is taking place. And, and I say in, in all of that, the exploration of related and relating to relating, let's not forget the best. Let's not forget the jewel of the teachings, which is unparalleled, unexcelled freedom, in spite of the appearance of duality, in spite of the appearance of differences, in spite of the appearance of self and other, that in themselves they have no inherent power in terms of obscuring genuine liberation. And I think in our daily lives that when we leave here tomorrow and go on our respective journeys, I think it's important that we are quite ruthless. It's not only letting go of the unpleasant and the unsatisfactory and, and all of that. Any human being wants to be free from all of that. But in a way, we, we've got to walk out of here and in a way which says, okay, like dust. One brushes it off, IMS. No room for nostalgia. No room for the thought of, I remember when it was so nice. So one couldn't care less whether the name of the street was Pleasant Street or Unpleasant Street. <laughs> one has said life has moved on, the rhythm of it has moved on, the passion and the flow and the fire of it's moved on, and there's no holding on to the old because the old is finished with. Not to be repeated, not to ever come back, not to be reborn, recycled or whatever. And I think in that, not clinging to the pleasant and the, and the lovely impressions that one has. I think there's an opportunity to feel a freedom in the next step, which is tomorrow. So I think the teachings have of watching the mind with its seeing, perceiving of differences to the degree of conflict instead of seeing diversity with a revelation of wonder. The mind which becomes bland and just sees sameness and uniformity and, and all the, the drudgery of that kind of feeling. And that we're not going to be a prisoner to extremes because the, the middle way is the liberating way. I think perhaps out of that there's an opportunity in our relating to relating with our loved ones and our friends and family and people of the earth and people in other parts of the earth and a different kind of vision different kind of vision which is not living in this tragically constrictive framework of self-righteous reference of us and them and the mobilizing of troops the pouring in of troops why 
because the duality is so intolerable that the forces on one side of self think the only way to end the duality is by destroying the other side of that duality. Such blindness, such tragic historical consequences. And I say that way of doing things is because the mind is utterly lazy. Laziness starts wars. And I think if we can explore these things, look into our own self-righteousness, look into our selfness, explore with others, connect with others, relate with others, go into that with each other. Then the spark and the wonders of life keep endlessly, effortlessly revealing themselves. Because we've said to ourselves, I'm not going to stand still in self. And I think, I may say personally, that I think it's necessary. If the teachings can't radicalize human consciousness, in all circumstances, personal, social, national, global, if the teachings can't do that, then the teachings have no business being spoken in this world. It would be better to forget them. So let's not carry yesterday as a shadow of tomorrow or today. Let's be careful each time we speak of the so-called Middle East crisis. May all beings see into life May all beings see into the nature of things. May all beings discover that liberation and the unfolding compassion. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
www.ghostbusters.org slash donate.